Turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. If it were not for grace, where would we be? Beautiful song. As we look at our our passage today, um, we're going to run into a a uh, familiar story, very familiar story, that uh, that proves the divinity of Christ for one, His power another, and uh, it is the account of Jesus healing the ten lepers. Um, leprosy, as you probably already know, it was a devastating disease. Uh, that until 1982 had no cure. No cure existed for leprosy. And beyond you know, having to watch your hands and your feet and your face deteriorate with time and, and waste away with wear, um, perhaps the most devastating effect was how lepers had to be separated and quarantined from society because it is a contagious bacterial disease. Uh, leprosy rendered, rendered a person, an Israelite, uh, any person, immediately unclean. You know, even, even at the hint of a suspicious scab of some kind, uh, they would be brought before a priest who would, in direction with Leviticus chapter 13, one chapter before what we read earlier in our scripture reading, uh, that priest would examine the scale. There were instructions there for examining that scale, uh, that scab to isolate uh, then that individual for up to 14 days. The days were to determine whether or not it was truly leprosy or some other kind of eczema, some other skin condition. They would be able to tell within 14 days. But if, if verified as leprosy, that individual would be immediately and in practice permanently isolated from society. In Leviticus 14, by comparison, that small portion I read to you earlier, there it provided an elaborate ceremony through which a priest announced a person infected with leprosy was healed. That ceremony... Very detailed, elongated, prolonged announced that a person had been healed. Before Christ entered ministry, just about, just under three years ago at this time, get this, get this, that ceremony had never been performed in Israel. Almost 1,500 years in the land now, at least 1,450 or right around 1,450 years in the land, and a leprous Israelite had never been healed, ever. The only person to ever be cleansed of leprosy during that period in the land was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. Jesus declared uh, this in his hometown synagogue. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You can read about that in Second Kings chapter 5. But the Syrian general named Naaman... Uh, being a Gentile, he, he didn't visit the priest afterwards. He was a Gentile from Syria. He returned home at direction of Elisha, the prophet. So when descendants of, of Aaron, the Levitical priests, and, and other priests went to seminary school, 
and asked the professors, you know, how much are we going to need to know about Leviticus chapter 14 and this ceremony? How much will we need to remember about it? And the professors simply said, well, don't worry about it. We aren't even going to test you on that section because we've never had to perform that. Nobody ever gets healed from leprosy. Students aren't even going to be tested. Then along comes Jesus. You might recall from two years ago in in Luke chapter 5, the first time we encountered a leper with Jesus, that he healed them and told him to go show himself to the priest. We went through chapter 5 about two years ago. And at that time I taught how that, that whole elaborate ceremony in Leviticus chapter 14 served one practical function. One practical function, and one alone. It was to alert the priests that Christ had come. You know, Jesus told those Pharisees, you know, you, you, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And he said, the, it is these that testify to me. Leviticus chapter 14, that first section, declaring a leper clean, it testified to Christ. The priests would be forced to take out their Leviticus chapter 14 study guide and their manual and you know, blow the dust off it that had gathered over such time and ask themselves, you know, what in the world's happening in Israel? What is going on? And, and it should have prompted them to recognize that a person in the spirit of Elisha had come. Of course, we know John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Here we see ample evidence that there was... a person with the same spirit of Elisha in the land. And uh, folks, that was at the healing of only one leper. That's just one. Small miracle on that one. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us if that man actually ever ended up at the temple reporting to the priests. We don't know for sure. Excuse me, we don't even know if he did, if they actually believed that he was once leprous. You know, he tells them, you know, I used to be a leper. He's completely clean. And they're like, Sure. This man had a little too much, too strong drink. Um, we don't know. We don't know. But in Luke chapter 17, two and a half years have now passed chronologically for Jesus' ministry. The masses in Israel have, have turned away from following Jesus. Uh, they had embraced his healings, but not his demands for self-sacrifice. Uh, as the path To Jerusalem grew harder and the teachings more difficult. John chapter 6 verse 66 tells us that many of his disciples no longer followed him. Jesus' ministry had peaked. The the nation of Israel as a whole, as a nation, had rejected him. The Pharisees were plotting to kill him. We're just weeks away from the cross here, folks. And now only about a month or so maybe, from Calvary. We don't know the exact timeline, but it is close. A very short period of time, he performs this, this same miracle tenfold. Tenfold. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. While Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, notice his goal, his destination, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance, met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. You know, I first look at this, the question immediately arises, the question comes to your mind. Um, it seems to be, it seems to be when Jesus encounters these lepers that he is encountering people of faith. We don't know exactly why Jesus is on the border of Samaria and Galilee. There may be a couple reasons. It is quite possible that he is anticipating meeting a, a group of, uh, from Galilee that was on pilgrimage to go to the temple for Passover. That is very possible. That would, by the way, end up being Jesus' final Passover. Without question, um, on the border of Samaria, it would not be real surprising Jesus encounters a mixed group of lepers. A mixed group. It appears there are nine Jews. One is a Samaritan. And though, you know, Jews normally have no dealings with Samaritans. You see that in John chapter 4. Um, though they normally have nothing to do with Samaritans. Uh, there's a common bond here. They're all lepers. That common bond uh, binds them together. And without question, you know, they, they have heard somewhere, somehow, at some time, that Jesus might have the ability to heal them. They'd heard he healed all kinds of diseases miraculously. And, and though we do know Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and, and we know that his destination is the Passover, uh, he's been on the way uh, to the path to Jerusalem, by the way, since uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He's been on a long path to get to Jerusalem. The lepers, however, would surely not be on their way to Jerusalem for, to join in on that celebration. Standing at a distance, they, they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You know, the, their cries in unison give the impression these are, as I said a moment ago, people of faith. You know, they, they even... Assign him a title. Yeah, Master recognizes that Jesus is one of high rank. You know, that term master was very common in Greek literature. The word is epistates. It was used to refer generally, listen to this, generally to a taskmaster. A driver of an elephant was an epistates. An inspector of public works, he's a city inspector. Leader of an athletic society, a musical conductor, and even a president of a college. So they viewed Jesus as, as someone of elevated rank. Someone whom they believed could perhaps remedy their immediate condition. They believed this so... 
we can appropriately label them people of faith. There's surely no shortage of people of faith in our society today as well. Um, there are even those who give verbal assent to Jesus, re- recognizing him as being very distinguished, having an elevated rank. Many of those same people in the faith community would also recognize the Dalai Lama, Buddha, Muhammad, many others as men, distinguished religious figures, who are elevated in rank. And as we look at the, at the social climate of our day, where we are in America, nearly everyone enjoys being recognized as belonging to that community of faith. Everyone enjoys being part of that. After all, you know, we all believe in something. Everybody believes in something. You know, if, if you believe that Jesus can help you, that's perfectly fine with the rest of us. You know, many of us also enjoy the writings of Confucius. We have a friend, Larry, over there. You might want to introduce yourself to him. He overcame his addiction while praying to uh, St. Hita de Cassia. That, by the way, is the saint that my wife, Rita, her middle name is de Cassia. Hita de Cassia. Uh, that's who she's named after. It's a saint of the impossible cause. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. I was the impossible cause. <laughs> They might say, you know, speak to Cassandra over there. Um, She's become a social activist after reading uh, the writings of Mahatma Gandhi. You know, uh, we're all people of faith around here. And people of faith pray. They read spiritual literature of all kinds. Some meditate. You know, others might even attend church on Sunday. They're all people of faith. In fact, we even have in our nation, a homosexual running for president, falsely claiming to be a Christian who finds it advantageous to identify himself as a person of faith. Even a Christian, he would say. You know, virtually all people of faith would claim to pray, to believe in God. Most could provide you with a a dogmatic explanation of what is right and wrong. For they hold a set of values because they're people of faith. They, they believe something. Well, big deal. Everybody believes something. Even atheists believe something. What is it that you believe? These ten lepers happen to believe that Jesus might be able to do something. Maybe he can alleviate their temporal condition, their spiritual condition in this lifetime. That's the only reason it's temporal. Um, It would last them their lifetime. So so in their desperation, they cry out to him, you know, Lord Jesus, Master. None of this indicates that they are saved. None of it does. Nothing indicates that. The fact that they call out using a generic title, uh, Master, substantiates nothing. In Matthew 7, verse 22, Jesus said, In the coming day of judgment, many will call out to me, Lord, Lord. That is an even more noteworthy term to use of someone than the generic master. 
People will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So calling Jesus Master or calling Him Lord or even Savior, that alone by itself doesn't substantiate anything. Nothing at all. Further confusion then arises from some when it says that all ten actually obey Jesus. That's what's next. Verse 14, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. The same command to all of them. They they had clearly not yet been healed. I imagine uh, they looked to one another reasoning amongst themselves, Oh, why not? Let's give it a shot. He said, Go to the priest. Let's go. And and though they had not yet experienced healing, they did respond to Christ's command to go. Does that obedience suggest that they are saved. Think about that for a second. Does obedience to a simple command verify that you are saved? Does it alone validate salvation? Let me ask in this way. Scripture says, do not forsake the assembly of the saints. Find that Hebrews 10.25. Be faithful attending church. That's God's command, right? It is. It's God's command. Across our nation, millions of people of faith rise weekly to faithfully attend churches of various denominations obeying that one command. Does that mean that everybody who attends church on Sunday is a Christian? No. Not simply because they obeyed a command. Of course not. Those who, uh, there are those who've gone to church, you know, their entire lives. But an act of obedience to a command alone is not validation that they're saved. Well, how about the fact that they're healed? That, that must tell something. That must indicate something significant. Verse 14 continues, and, and as they were going, they were cleansed. You know, and that word for cleansed uh, insists, insists that the lepers were entirely cleansed, completely cleansed. Some preachers might say in the Greek it says that they were completely cleansed. They were entirely cleansed. That assures us that they're saved. They're completely cleansed. No. In the Greek it means their leprosy was completely cleansed. That's all that it means. Uh, and, and what this spontaneous and, and really supernatural miracle by Jesus proves, it, it, and what it provides, it's not evidence that they were all saved. It is evidence to those ten men and us here today that Christ is divine. That's the evidence that it gives. The fact that they were all healed doesn't mean that they were all saved. What it means is Christ is the one who saves. He's God in the flesh. Think about that then. What would you do? How would you respond if a healing like that occurred to you? Something like that completely altered the course of your life. What would you do? Think about that just for a minute. 
Folks, this is where the rubber meets the road. Those who used to be lepers and unclean. Remind us, by the way, of anyone here today? Those who used to be lepers and unclean now have a choice to make. But put yourself in their place. You can continue on to the Passover feast. There you can, for the first time in many years, be reabsorbed into your previous life. Your previous religion. You can be be reunited with your friends, uh, your family. Return to embrace everything that you used to enjoy before you met Jesus. Your life prior to him. Or, let us imagine uh, it isn't quite time yet for the Passover. Though the timing is noteworthy, uh, without additional evidence in the text, uh, I can't force that pilgrimage to the Passover onto this passage. Because it just doesn't state that clearly. It's, it's, it, it's something suspicious in the timeline that we know that they would be pilgriming about this time, but you can't force that into the text. Imagine then if you are healed by Jesus and believe He is Christ the Messiah. You really believe that He is the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. Is your first response heading off to the priest to be declared clean? Leviticus chapter 14. To be restored through keeping the law. That's what they're going to be declared in Leviticus 14. Declared clean by the law. You know, you might get to take part in a fancy celebration that that probably hasn't been done maybe once in in Luke 5. That's the only other leper we see healed in Scripture. Maybe it's been done once, maybe never been done before. You could take part of that. Um, Some might suggest that would be the right thing to do. That would be the right thing to do. First, you follow the law. And then you follow Jesus. You ever heard that before? Others just say, you know, this is a tough one. Because Jesus commanded, go and show yourself to the priest. He, he really did. Um, what's the right thing to do? Well, the good part is, this, this is the best part. We're not left in the cold here. Because the passage doesn't end here. The passage provides the answer for us. All are walking to the temple to report to the priests. When they're cleansed, then, what is the right thing to do? We'll know in just a moment. But there is one, uh, only one, in the group who stops and turns back. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why just this one turned back? Why, why just one? Why, th- why this particular one? Have you ever asked that question? Because the, the answer to that question is, is tagged on to the end of verse 16 and 18, both places. You see it? The answer is the last word in each sentence. doesn't matter which version of the Bible you've got. It's always the last word. Um, verse 16, he was a Samaritan. Verse 18, he was a foreigner was a stranger. The foreigner notices that, that his skin, it's, it's fully restored, completely healed. If, if his cleansing was like that of, of Naaman in, in Kings that we talked about earlier, if it was like that type of cleansing, there it said his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. He had baby skin. 
They all had baby skin. All ten of them were cleansed. They were soft, supple, kind of like squeezing Gideon, right? You know, and they're going to grab those little arms. It's soft. It's, it's baby skin. And all ten, they, they surely began laughing. They were rejoicing. They were, they were hugging. They were embracing. Except then, they saw it. They saw that there was one standing amongst them. One that was a problem. The problem was, he was a Samaritan. He was a foreigner. You know the Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans? No dealings. They probably sang that song that we hear on Sesame Street. Here it goes. One of these things doesn't go together. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell me which of these things doesn't, isn't like the others before I finish this song? They're like, no. No, that's a Samaritan. We don't have any dealings with Samaritan. Well, this is very important. Hang with me. The Greek term for foreigner, uh, for foreigner it's elegenes. Elegenes. It's related to our modern terms, allergen and allergy. All right? For us, allergen means something introduced from the outside that when it comes inside is an irritant to us, right? In Israel, allergenes was used to refer to someone of another race who doesn't belong. And what is most significant is that elegance is also what is referred to among theologians as a hapax legomenon, or just a hapax for short. Pastor Weiler, being a good student at Dallas Seminary, can tell you that a hapax legomenon is a word that only appears one time in all of Scripture. Nowhere else, but it's inserted here. It's translated foreigner. And Elegonis appears no one else, nowhere else in Scripture, but surely every Jew knew where it did appear. Every good Jew knew where that word appeared. The word Elegonis was chiseled on a famous inscription at the entrance to the temple that warned, no one of another race is allowed in here. No foreigners. So as the, the nine rejoiced at how they could return to the temple, the priests, the law, the sacrifices, the Samaritan says to himself this, I've got nowhere to go. I've got nowhere else to go but Jesus. And he remembers, I'm an Algonese. There's no path to worship, no forgiveness, no restoration there for me at the temple. There's no restoration there for anyone else, for all that matters. There's one Passover remaining, folks. One. A few weeks away. The blood of only one lamb will turn away the wrath of God at this Passover 
feast. And in a few weeks, as Christ is nailed to the cross, Exodus 12, verse 23, reminds us, when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house and smite you. That's what they were celebrating at Passover. The other nine were returning to a religious system that had been eclipsed, no longer had any capacity to save them. The foreigner returned to worship Christ, who actually can. And in verse 15, the Samaritan, (laughs) he began displaying evidence of salvation, says he began glorifying God with with a loud voice. Folks, that's what we refer to as praise. In Acts 3, in a description of praise, when Peter and John healed the lame beggar at the temple, we are told, with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, praising God. So praise and adoration of God is the expected and reasonable response of someone who has just truly been saved. There's praise of God. We don't get any indication of praising God from the other nine. You ever met someone who is really in a bind? Could be a financial bind, could be a you know, an illness bind or or any other kind of bind. Probably not as bad as leprosy, but but in a real bad bind, and they're like, Jesus will just get this one get me out of this one. Oh, if he'll just do it this one time, I will serve him from this day forward. Then somehow the the financial stress gets relieved or, or the tests come out negative and they're like, ah, oh, this is nice. But they never go to glorifying God for what they have received. Very common. Very common. In verse 16, combined with praise, we see the worship of Christ. The Samaritan fell on his face at his feet giving thanks to him. And falling on your face at at Jesus' feet, that was a common posture of worship. That was an expected posture of worship at that time. Even uh, the Samaritan would know only God gets worshipped. Only God. Uh, Jesus being God, the Son, receives worship. Thanks describes our attitude in worship. It's the gratitude we express for salvation. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 12 says we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why we give thanks. Redemption, forgiveness of sins. And when a person recognizes Christ as Savior... God the Spirit gives an impassioned desire to want to praise God. God the Father expressed through worship of God the Son. We worship again and again, week after week, year after year, displaying our thanks again and again. Praise, worship, and thanks. None of those are displayed by the other nine. None. They didn't recognize Christ as the one and only mediator through which to offer God praise, worship, and thanks. 
That's what we do as Christians. That's what the Samaritan did. We bow our hearts in worship. You know, we're not merely offering Jesus Christ a, a common respect with a title as to one who holds an elevated rank. Paying respect, folks, is not the same as worship. A lot of people will say they respect Jesus. Do they worship Him? Truly regenerate Christians don't only respect Jesus. We express an adoration, a thanks, and worship for cleansing us from all of our sins. That's what the picture is. That's what the picture is here. A complete cleansing of the Samaritan. That's the inherent contrast, by the way, between the Samaritan and the other nine who also called him master. Big difference, big difference. Jesus takes notice. He takes notice. In verse 17, in response to the adoration of the Samaritan, the worship that is, Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Jesus here, if you didn't notice, he isn't asking. He doesn't say, what happened to the other ten? It isn't as if he's asking a question as much as he is answering one. It is a question that is, is present in the narrative. What happened to everybody else? He isn't asked by anyone. It's, it's poised through the story. So Jesus answers what everyone who is going to be reading already wonders. Weren't there ten cleansed? Surely... The passage insists Jesus knows that they were cleansed. But the nine, where were they? The word order in the original language, that being the Greek again, places the word where, that, that one word, in a position of emphasis. Places it right at the end of the sentence. That draws extra attention to their absence. So Jesus actually says it in a word order like this. But the nine... They are where? And the final judicial pronouncement is upon them. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? There's all the evidence you need right there. The others weren't glorifying God. The answer is no. And, and this passage supplies a, you know, a perfect reflection of what had happened throughout Jesus' ministry in Israel. Overwhelmingly, the Jews enjoyed his extensive ministry of healing, but most displayed no desire to worship him as their long-awaited Messiah. They wanted the healing with no strings attached to worship him. Boy, what does that look like today? Everybody wants Jesus to heal them. Nobody wants to bow the knee. So few, excuse me, so few want to bow the knee before him. Um, They'd rather just return to the temple, the other nine. Preserve their external framework of religion. Let's hold on to that. Temple, priests, sacrifices, the law. Let's, Let's preserve that. They saw themselves as people of faith. Meanwhile, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the, the outcasts, the, the tax collectors, you know, other sinners. They overwhelmingly responded to God's grace through Christ. 
probably sang that wonderful song that the choir sang earlier, Gerald, all about grace. What grace? Jesus told the Samaritan, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Uh, probably better translated, your faith has saved you. Those words, um, made well or made whole, are used in many parts of the New Testament to describe salvation. So your faith has saved you, Jesus says. Is he talking about some kind of intrinsic faith that caused the, the Samaritan to be ca- uh, healed from leprosy? Say no. Is this final sentence in this paragraph, is it about leprosy? That he was made well? All ten were cleansed. The other nine were physically healed, but they didn't exhibit or enjoy any type of of saving faith. Jesus healed large crowds of people having every type of disease. You know, he nearly eradicated illness in, in, in Israel. Nearly took it out. He was healing everybody. He even raised the dead. Think of the faith in the dead person that he had to have. It's not about the dead person. It's not about the person being healed. It's not about the, the droves of people that had been healed. It's about the king who had come. Um, Being physically restored, that's not an indicator of saving faith. It's not. Praise, worship, and thanks to Jesus are. That's why we gather to worship. What kind of faith saved him? Was it the kind that prompted him to turn along with the other nine to go to the priest? Head off to the temple? Or was it the faith that God gave him that caused him to turn around and come back to Jesus? Which faith saved him? The answer is pretty clear. It's obvious in the text. Those Jews expressed the type of faith that made them well. The Samaritan enjoyed the type of faith that really made him well. Ten lepers were cleansed only one soul was saved. One verse, this is a good one. John 1.11 He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, he gave them the right, those who believed in his name, to become children of God. The Jews, the Gentile. Soon, in fulfillment of the prophets, uh, the Jews are going to crucify the sinless Christ, <laughs> the one who God the Father sent to save them. He'll, he'll be scourged, he'll be beaten, he will be spat upon and insulted by godless men who would convince themselves that they were people of faith. They were religious, but they didn't actually want a Savior This is going to be a little hard. I've heard scores of people confess that they believe in Jesus. They call him Master or Lord. You know, some go to church every single Sunday. Uh, some just Christmas and Easter. You know, others only when they need help out of a bind. I've heard many confidently, many of them even, confidently tell us Christians what we should believe. 
But when you t- attempt to talk to them about sin and repentance and salvation only available through Christ, um, they just dismiss. Say, yeah, I know, I know. I'm a Christian too. I'm a person of faith. We're all people of faith. And when you try to talk with them about the depravity in America, the state that we are in, sexual perversion, murder of the unborn, homosexuality that is rampant, greed that is present, those who who want to alter their gender, it's impossible by the way, can't alter your gender. It doesn't change. You can physically change the way you look. But you can't alter your DNA. It's impossible. You have those, you have those who support them. And when you try to speak to reality, it's, it's like speaking to a brick wall. A completely brick wall. They too claim to have faith. They, many of them call Jesus Master. They partly obey Him, but they don't want to turn around, turn from their sin, and bow to worship Him. Folks, we don't get our religion from pundits or politicians or celebrities who give alternative facts that they provide us about what they believe Jesus would do. That is not where we get our information at all. We worship and obey Christ as he reveals himself in the Bible alone. Alone. Um, one of our members last week shared a concern with me, a very valid concern, which all of us are thinking. Maybe we haven't fully thought through it, but we're all concerned. I know many people of faith would prefer, again in quotes, many people of faith would prefer to get political guidance from Oprah, you know, the evening news, maybe the view, their favorite political pundit. They'd rather get it there than from their Bibles and their church. For their kids, a lot of them would just say, you know what, they can get that in school. They can learn that, you know, political stuff in school. Oh, good job there. Now, where else are you going to find it except the Word of God? And this, this text provides a good opportunity to raise a concern one of the members expressed last week about politicians masquerading as Christians. Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruits. He doesn't say, you shall wonder. He says, you shall know them by their fruits. So, so we don't fly entirely blind into this. Agreed? Assessing fruit... When I assess fruit, this is me, you may disagree. Assessing fruit, I can't imagine any candidate for president on either side today is a Christian. I can't imagine it, looking at the fruit. I don't know their heart, but you look at the fruit. Um, Yet one claims to be, and this is what the concern was shared with me, One claims to be a Christian and has publicly assumed the role of a Christian teacher. He's done this publicly nationwide. Um, No personal issue with this gentleman at all. Pete Buttigieg. He is a practicing homosexual who strongly supports the murder of the unborn. Babies in the womb. 
And he claims that loving Christians would support his policies. This is what Christians must do. Assess his policies. Not a person's looks, not a person's gender, not a person's color, not a person's personality. Because granted, Mayor Pete, I said I have no personal beef with him. He comes across as a very composed and very credible individual. At least what I've seen. Apparently he calls Jesus Lord. But since he has assumed the position of a spiritual advisor to the nation, which he has done, he stands out in particular. And, and the truth is, his policies and his lifestyle are destructive. That's what they are. He will not condemn the evil practice of abortion, which reportedly, remember the doctor who had collected a thousand fetuses? He died and they found him in his home. Apparently he practiced in Mayor Pete's hometown. Yet you won't hear people speaking against this type of stuff, really generally on either the political spectrums. Um, Mayor Pete's an easy illustration. Again, he has set himself up as a advisor to Christians. So he's, he's laid himself out there. Um, he's an easy illustration. I can't see where any regenerate Christian who actually knows Christ is an indwelt by the Holy Spirit could vote for a homosexual abortion activist no matter how polite he seems. Maybe if he's running against you know, Charles Manson. You never know what can be out there. Be wise. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Uh, it's, it's over a year away, praise the Lord. Make your own decisions. It isn't reserved only to the office of president. That's the one that gets, gets the most attention. Um, it's, it's to any office. City, state, federal, whatever office it is. And you won't hear this on Oprah. Look at their policies, not their personality. Personalities deceive. In the day of final judgment, many will cry as did the lepers, Master, Master, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. And folks, Jesus says this to people of faith. The road that leads to life, it's very narrow. Let's pray.